And now a message from our sponsor. Hey everybody, it's Bootleg Captain, Captain Bootlegs here. Yeah. If you're like me, I bet you're enjoying this Toys, Toys on, on Tap, Tap podcast. Yeah, I am enjoying it, it's very nice. But did you know you can enjoy it more just by joining that Patreon? Oh, I did not know that. There are so many cool perks available on the Patreon for you. There's and also and Wow, that's really a lot of stuff if you ask Bootleg Captain. Captain I don't bootleg. understand. There were noises I couldn't hear with the person. So join today to support Toys on Tap podcast and Bootleg Art Toys. But if you're not in a position to join the Patreon, head on over to Apple iTunes and review and subscribe. That helps out the channel as well. Okay, I'll go rate it, I guess. And remember, listen to Toys, Toys on, on Tap. Captain Bootleg, the bootleg captain sent you. Why does he keep referring to himself in the third Can person? I stop with the stupid voice now? I'm not sure why you made me want to sound like a pirate. Oh, so that was a fake voice. Oh, yucko! I didn't realize it was just pretend voice. Oh, okay. We are back with part two, Toys on Tap. I, I titled it Understanding the Bootleg because I feel like that is a good all-encompassing title for episode one, and I think that'll carry on. But we are talking less toys today with yeah. Yo-Yo Dine again, and I'm excited. So, Scott, it's you, man. Oh, uh, it's me, huh? Um, yeah, I think that like Understanding the Bootleg is like a good framework for this. Um, you know, we, uh, my individual, like I'm sort of naming the individual episodes in my head, but understanding the bootleg part one plus my title plus my name is just like way too much for anyone to process. <laughs> That's it, like, you know, TLDR, like it doesn't have to like sound like an academic paper. So let's yeah. not do that. Um, yeah. So this week I wanted to talk about something, um, maybe do like a very quick recap of a core idea that I was trying to get to last week that I rambled on about for 90 minutes with you that I managed to sum up like literally in two sentences today. <laughs> <laughs> Don't tell people uh, that. <laughs> ah, whatever, man. If they if you made it through that, then here's the abridged version of this and where I want to start and the stories I want to tell today. So if last week's episode I called terms and conditions because we were talking about the cultural conditions of bootlegs and copying and appropriation and the terminology we deployed, uh, this week I call it the house of mouse as in H-A-U-S, M-A-U-S, um, particularly because we know that a particular creator of a particular mouse um, allegedly had associations with uh, fascists. So, you know, we can start there and then you, you know where we'll go. So today's going to be kind of all about Disney and a particular sort of like set of stories about Disney that I think are really interesting in terms of ownership. And so just to kind of backpedal, if this is about understanding the bootleg. Let's start with looking at the definition of bootleg again, in contrast to another definition that I think is really useful here. So, you know, bootlegging basically in the most strictest, like basic definition of the word is to make, distribute, or sell illicit goods uh, illegally. Uh, so what is a bootlegger? A bootlegger is a person who makes, distributes, and sells illicit goods. Um, you know, in in the 20s, it was alcohol. And this is sort of where the term becomes popularized. But there's another term along with that that I think is really interesting, which is prohibition. So if prohibition is sort of a legally preventing someone from doing something, you are prohibiting somebody by the constraints of the law, you know, the term per meant uh, was, was to legally prohibit the, the manufacture, storage, 
sale of alcohol. But if you look at the definition of the term itself, you can see that it's an act or practice forbidding something by law, which means that any legal framework that says this is the stuff you can do, this is the stuff you can't do, is prohibitive and therefore sort of fits into what we can call prohibition. So the logic that I'm trying to, the road I'm leading people down here is this idea that copyright in this case is a legal, if it's a legal framework which forbids unauthorized reproductions, whether that's of goods or um, you're getting cat rubbing sounds on the mic right now. <laughs> I'm good at <laughs> editing, so you're good. <laughs> I'm not brushing my teeth with my, the microphone. This is my 14 year old elderly cat who really likes microphones. So thank you for interrupting me, Shadow. When I lecture and record video lectures, I leave that in, so I hope you do too. But uh, <laughs> so to return to this idea, right? So that if, if, if copyright is a legal framework which forbids the unauthorized reproduction of a thing, whether that's an image or a, an object or a character or an idea, it means that copyright laws themselves are a kind of prohibition. And therefore, people who are making work outside of that legal framework that are that is unsanctioned or bootleggers then we return to bootleg toys mm -hmm. um or bootleg anything right like unauthorized copies of the thing and so today because we're talking about disney some of that stuff that we can consider to be bootleggy often falls under sort of critique satire and parody um but um I think still has a very sort of similar kind of spirit, which is flaunting this idea of the ownership of ideas in this particular way and saying that, you know, freedom of expression means that if we take your ideas and use them to critique, you know, for example, your business practices, um, that that is completely valid. Um, of course, we know that the history of Disney is, is, is not one who graciously takes their critiques lying down um, so I wanted to talk about the history of it a little bit and, 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 and see where we get to and talk about some like really fun and like really transgressive work that I love, um, that I really, really appreciate for different reasons. Yeah. Um, and Disney, so, if you're listening, which we know you are, yeah. be gentle with us. <laughs> they don't even have people listening, man. I think part of Disney plus is actually secretly just an army of AI that swarms like... <laughs> It's, it's like they, like it's not unreasonable to assume that they could have a technological apparatus similar to that of the NSA and like wireless taps and stuff. It's not. It's not. There, it's, I'm glad that we're talking about Disney today for uh, one main reason. When I was younger, and I say younger, that could have been like five years ago, not even that long ago. Um, there was a web or this like graph that got passed around and it showed Disney in the middle. And then across the top, it said, what does Disney own? You mean that? Yep. There we go. <laughs> and it is, it is so crazy to think of what Disney yeah. own. and people, because what drives me nuts is people stop when they say like, Oh, Marvel and things like star Wars, that is base level. They own news. They own like anything everything. and everything you can think of. Disney yeah. either has a hand in something 
that teaches that or covers that like sports new like everything and it's just crazy and i loved seeing it when i was younger i was like oh my gosh this is amazing they own gopro they own gopro they own photo (laughs) bucket it is crazy yeah whatever the fuck whatever the fuck razor gator is my favorite you see hulu up there oh yeah yeah. Oh my god! Okay, so, what so the, pe- that's in the 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 Hulu Foxosphere is up here. Yeah. So this yeah. goes out to the friend of mine that said, like, no, I don't, I don't want to give money to the beast that is Disney. That's why I do Hulu and Netflix. That's why I subscribe to Hulu. Yeah. <laughs> you are still giving money to the beast that is Disney. So that's great. Yeah. yeah I um. Wow. There is a subsidiary under Disney Music Publishing called Wampa Tonton Music. I guess that's to sell Star Wars audio well i know what i'm looking up and googling after we're done here yeah wampa tauntaun is that them like culturally appropriating like indigenous music maybe <laughs> sounds <laughs> like it might be uh Utapau, that's also a star wars thing anyway yeah all this to say um you know the the multi-headed hydra the 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 fiercest media industrial complex beast on the planet um, and this is a good segue because this is where we are. But uh, understanding the origins of this, I think, are really interesting because the Walt Disney, like as a company, kind of starts um, in the same way that something like Image Comics did, which was a desire on the part of a creator to retain the rights to his own creation so that he mm-hmm. can make a living off of his work. Um, and oh, know, did hum- they? Humble origins, right? So in the 1920s and i'm not a disney biographer by any means i'm not a disney expert but you know there there are parts of this story that i think are really important um because if we understand the like one of the things about bootlegging that i talked about last week um was that like you can you can make a bootleg without actually physically copying anything and you're taking like two characters or two ips and you're sort of doing stuff or even one and doing something and it's still technically a bootleg because it's the unauthorized you are prohibited from copying the likeness of that character and if it is that character then you are you are bootlegging that character right so and that falls under like copyright but also like the phenomenon of character licensing which is a very huge phenomenon in the entertainment world now um and not just character licenses but brands like there are corporate entities whose sole reason for being is to simply be a storehouse for brands that are no longer um like active and like holding them in a clearinghouse way and licensing the name to other people polaroid atari um the list could go on forever yeah um And so what I wanted to highlight here is that like part of the origins of that phenomenon are due in large part to the rise of American culture and industrialization in the early 20th century. And Disney is like the earliest of exemplars in this, right? So the humble origins of of the the corporate holding deregulated beast post Reagan era all sort of trace back to Disney. Everything that we sort of are interested in in terms of the characters that we appropriate and the likenesses and the brands that we appropriate, they all trace back to the 1920s when after Universal Studios basically said, 
we're going to start paying you less for your Oswald the Lucky Rabbit cartoons that you've been making for us, Walt Disney. Walt Disney um, tried to get the rights back and he lost that case. So Universal owns Oswald the Lucky Rabbit. So what does he do? He creates, before it was Disney Brothers Company, then it becomes Walt Disney Studios in 1928. And in 1928-29, he basically knocks off his own character. Which Which is, is, okay, so if we pause right there, that is, by definition, he's bootlegging, but it's still his own character, right? Is it only considered bootlegging because someone owns it? So, so... I would not call Mickey Mouse a bootleg of Oswald the Rabbit. I would call Mickey Mouse a knockoff of Oswald the Rabbit because terminologically, like, you know, last class. um, Yeah. (laughs) But like last week when we talked about this, the thing that makes a knockoff a knockoff versus a bootleg is that it's legally distinct enough that it can exist on its own, even though like the aesthetics or whatever might be like totally adjacent to it, right? Though everyone watching knows that those two go together. It's clear if you put Mickey Mouse from Steamboat Mickey and Oswald the Lucky Rabbit beside one another, they're made like kind of like there's like less than a year between the two at this one particular moment, right? Um, And yeah, they look really similar. Um, Maybe I should pause and let you play that clip from The Simpsons right here. Maybe my dad did steal Itchy, but so what? Animation is built on plagiarism. If it weren't for someone plagiarizing the Honeymooners, we wouldn't have the Flintstones. If someone hadn't ripped off Sergeant Bilko, there'd be no Top Cat. Huckleberry Hound, Chief Wiggum, Yogi Bear, (laughs) Andy Griffith, Edward G. Robinson, Art Carney. Your Honor, you take away our right to steal ideas, where are they going to come from? All right, and we're back. If you take away our right to steal, where are we going to get our ideas? Um... So that Simpsons clip really like captures like the corporate spirit of copying that will become part of the stories that we tell throughout the rest of the series as well, right? Like mm-hmm. um, there's some fun ones. There's some really fun ones, but not to get too far forward. So, so in 1928-29, I think it's 29 when, or is it 28 when Steamboat Mickey comes out? I think so. It's either I just call it the 20s because it's tough to nail down some of that stuff for me. So almost 100 years ago, Mm-hmm. at this point right um steamboat mickey is like a runaway success and literally within months of the success of steamboat mickey walt disney does something that nobody else in like sort of even like in corporate america has really done before he creates a subsidiary company from walt disney studios called walt Des- disney enterprises um and what walt disney enterprises sole job was as a company was to license mickey mouse mouse's likeness to companies that wanted to manufacture goods with his likeness on it. So the most famous one and probably the most ubiquitous even to date would be like the famous sort of iconic plush Mickey doll. Mm -hmm. Um, But the very first one was actually like a children's drawing tablet, which is essentially like a piece of chalkboard with a wooden frame that came in a box that had Mickey Mouse on the cover and like a wood burned like, like Mickey Mouse face on the top. That was the very first object that was a, like licensed Mickey Mouse object. That was weird. And so M- Disney's work here st- starts something. It starts something real, like a phenomenon, like in, in a transmedia, like merchandising phenomenon. So following Mickey Mouse, 
something very similar happens with Superman and both through the radio dramas and the comic books and uh, like a merchandising campaign to the point where DC says, oh my God, we've got something here. We need to do another character so we can keep this up. And, and, and Batman is born. Mm-hmm. Like Batman is born out of like a direct lineage from this kind of like early transmedia ecology. And by transmedia ecology, what I mean is this is multiple different media paths for these characters to exist in. So in the case of Superman, right, it starts as a comic book, but it very quickly becomes a radio drama, which then becomes uh, like a Hollywood serial um, movie series, et cetera, et cetera. And Disney is doing the same thing. They're making Mickey Mouse comic books, um, right? And then they're expanding their, their, their Disney universe to include other characters and they're ever expanding and they're ever expanding their market share. And the whole time they're doing this, they've already got their own like setup to say your entire reason for being is to basically rent. We interrupted this broadcast of Toys on Tap to bring you this. Meanwhile, in a galaxy of bootleg treasures. DOV2, we have engine failure. We almost crash land on DKE Toy Planet. Oh my, we're doomed. Wait, salvation. Hooray, we're saved in DOV2. Limited edition custom artist-made action figures and DKE Toys! Check out www.dkatoys.com for a full catalog. Hooray for custom action figures! DKE! RIP to other people so they can make shit. We get a cut of their profits plus an upfront fee from them. Hmm. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, yeah. That is such a good model. And this is this has nothing to do with this. I wish that like when you watch the toys that made us you, and you hear the Kenner deal with Lucas Films, yes, Lucas should have done something like that with uh, Kenner. Like, oh, we get an upfront and we get a portion. But if you watch that, they only get a portion rather than the upfront, and then it transitions into the. Well, and then and that that framework changes as well. But Lucas yeah. was very shrewd and very smart, and we will talk about that. But like. Lucas waived his director fee on Star Wars in order to retain the rights to Star Wars, which meant that because if he hadn't done that, Fox would have owned Star Wars, right? Mm. Um, and the irony is, is that Fox eventually owns Star Wars. Well, not owns, but like Disney now owns both Fox and Star Wars. Yeah. Right? Um, and But they bought them separately, which is really funny. But even if Lucas had sold the rights to Fox in 77, Disney would still own Star Wars in an alternate mm-hmm. timeline. Like it's, it blows my mind that that would probably still happen. Anyway, um, but so he did something very smart and he actually had people going out and trying to do the licensing work. The problem is people weren't biting because um, nobody had really been able to do merchandise based on a movie to date. Television for sure. And the reason that it worked for TV was because it was contiguous and continuous, right? So like, it's easier to get kids interested in toys at this particular moment if they're seeing a weekly episode of stuff. Yeah. But a one and done movie, nobody had gone there before. And that was sort of part of that. Um, But yeah, so like, but even like, I'm pretty sure that like, when I see the way that Lucas was behaving with Star Wars, he's like, this is my fucking Mickey Mouse. Yeah. 
right? Like I would, that if I had one question for him, if I could ever get an audience, you know, with the, with George Lucas, the one question on I would have is, <laughs> man, some of that stuff you told me earlier before we started recording, you really are, you really are hustling in a, in a, like a truly like amazing way. I'm very impressed. Um, See, I'm leaving this in there. That comes with, yeah, that's, I that's love earnest. That so much. Yeah. You know, I love it. Like that's absolutely earnest. Like you, you know, like, let's all take a moment to, to thank you for the work that you do. Um, thank you everyone. Because, because it's important to acknowledge that like, you know, not only, not only are you giving us an opportunity to sort of like express ourselves in a way different than the way we do on social media as part of this community. Um, like when you get interested in a thing and like, you know, the thing that I'm talking about that I won't mm -hmm. talk about yet, like it impresses me the links you will go because I am just as interested in that thing. And I never thought of doing it. <laughs> we, so you and I can never, this is like a pause for the <laughs> podcast episode. You and I can never, ever start a company together ever or work together on that because I, we have the same mindset of like, if it, if it controls the front and front part of my brain, that is all I do for the next however long until it's done. Yeah. And I, yeah, that would be detrimental for our own lives, but the company would do great. You would need us, what we need, what actually, what we would need, uh, sorry, anecdotally to get off topic, we are talking about corporate structure here. There we so, go. <laughs> so what we really would need, someone like you and I, were we to be like, you know, like, like co-creative officers at a corporation, we need a COO. We need someone in the middle to be like, yeah, that's all great guys. But like, remember that thing you were interested in last week that you didn't finish? That cost me $2 million. Like maybe you yeah. should finish that and deal with that and then come back to this. And then, and then we just oh. tell them like, just fuck off and we're going to do what we want to do. <laughs> yeah. So back to Disney and Mickey. Back to Disney and Mickey and corporate structure. So, right. So, so this framework becomes super critical because it establishes a business model that other um, other sort of rights holders in the kind of intellectual property, fictional universe, character licensing world, right? Mm -hmm. um, another company that emerges not long after that, like you had, you know, your DC Comics is sort of around, your Timely Comics is around, and then they become Marvel. Um, and it's when they become Marvel that they sort of have that transmedia explosion. But DC sort of, that happens earlier. And then there's the one that no, but not a lot of people talk about, but at this particular era was huge, was all of the characters that were under the King Feature Syndicate. So King Feature Syndicate that's started as a syndicate of newspaper strips. And this is Prince Valiant, uh, Flash Gordon, the mm. Phantom, uh, Mandrake the Magician, and then eventually in the 90s, like they're, you know, because it's like a IP license holding thing, they did a, there was a cartoon in the 90s called Defenders of the Earth. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and even now, is it Boss Fight Studios who's making new figures? Which is crazy. So, and from all this, yeah. we're starting the, as you describe it, we're starting to see the web forming. Like this yes. is the beginning of, the things that we complain about now, welcome to the beginning of these webs yeah. becoming interwoven. Yeah, the seeds of the seeds of postmodern late stage capitalism are planted in the early sort of modernist era in 1920s, like industrial entertainment, like American culture. You know, there are other parts of the world where other things are happening, but like, you know, um, 
uh, American, like there's something specific about the way this emerges in America that sort of has like a grasp and a foothold on like the way that all of these things seem to work like at both massive scale as we talked about with how much Disney owns, but even like when we were talking last week about how some people view the idea of having original characters that you can license as the path to success in this community, right? Like those seeds are still planted here, mm-hmm. I think. Um, you know, image, like even image comics and the explosion in the 90s after all those guys basically tell Marvel to go fuck themselves because they're the ones they believe that are selling the books and they're not getting compensation for it. They go start image comics for the very similar reasons as to why Disney started his own his own thing there. Yeah, and image um, does some dope work. Holy moly. Well, it's the, the thing about image is, is that all of the books that are that are sold with image are all creator owned. Mm. Right? Any individual creators whose names are on a comic book at image, those are the people who own the rights to that property. Not image. Image is a publisher. Okay. And that's how it works. Um, so like The Walking Dead, for example, and the reason that Robert Kirkman like could probably like buy out like the rest of the companies that Disney doesn't own at this point with the success of The Walking Dead is because he owns The Walking Dead, right? Um, and all of his other sort of projects as well. So he they own the rights to all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so like I find it super, super interesting that you know, one of the first examples of someone sort of taking it on, like taking the business on themselves as a creator for like creator rights and creator ownership is also one of the companies that is like, the deep irony is, is it's also one of the companies, and we can talk about this maybe at the end of the podcast, that is doing so much work against that very thing now. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so... So on the one hand, yeah, to get back on track a little bit here, you know, there's all this stuff about the origins of Disney that I think are really fascinating and are, you know, that's sort of like, like there's a clear line between, between this and like what we're interested in, but there's a clear line between contemporary culture and everything that sort of was happening with Disney even back then. Like, like really sort of like, yeah, the roots, like planning the roots of of like of like contemporary capitalism like disney is one of the sort of one of the branches of that tree root of that tree branches of yeah the roots, whatever i'm fucking up my metaphors it's fine um <laughs> so one of the other things that's really interesting as well and this this goes into that whole idea of like what i was talking about at the beginning here with prohibition right so if you own the copyright to your stuff and you can control it legally, um, then you're you're participating in a kind of prohibition. And there's some ironies with Disney, but and one of them is the public domain. And like, so the public domain is a re- is an interesting idea. I don't know how familiar familiar you are with the public domain, but the public domain it used to be. Um, I just I isn't this the thing after a certain amount of years things go yeah. up for grabs yeah yeah originally um following yeah there's there's been successive it used to be i believe it was 20 years after the the life of the author when it was like originally sort of formulated 
And I could I could go into the history of the legal frameworks for this that date back to like 1710 in Britain. I'm not mm -hmm. going to do that. But so it was 20 years. And then it, again, in the United States, right, in 1976, there was uh, legislation that extended it to 50 years after the death of an author or 75 years if it was a work of, quote, corporate authorship. This Holy is the geez. first. This is when that language starts coming into play, right? Um, and that was the 1970s. Here's your copyright right lesson. That was the Copyright Act of 1976. Um, and then this thing happens. Uh, and what would have happened is that um, in 1998, a little mousy friend was about to become part of the public domain for the first time. In 98? 98, because of, the, because of the way that the legal precedent worked and the frameworks, it was like anything before this date doesn't count, blah, 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 or counts under this framework. It gets kind of complicated, right? But anyway, in 98, it was like you were, they were approaching, Disney, the Disney company was approaching the end of the copyright life on Mickey Mouse. And so you can imagine what- The terror. The terror. So this leads to something with them directly lobbying a congressperson named Sonny Bono, mm. um, who, you know, Sonny, of Sonny and Cher, same guy, um, flower power at one point. There's that thing, if you're under 30 and you're not a radical, and if you're over 30 and you're not conservative, that, that like bullshit quote. I feel like Sonny Bono embodies that bullshit quote really well. <laughs> um, uh, anyway, so, um, it's colloquially, it was known as the Sonny Bono Copyright Term Extension Act, which extended um, the terms of the life of the author plus 70 years and the works of corporate authorship to 120. Okay, okay, let me track with you. So past Walt's life, Whenever he dies, then 120 years from then, or 120 years altogether. Uh, I think I think it has something to do with like whenever Disney takes the ownership, like Disney Company takes the ownership of the character. I don't like. There's some like legal grave stuff yeah. in here that I can't quite claim. But one of the things that's really interesting about this this act of legislation um, is that. Um, they also called it, it became pejoratively known as the Mickey Mouse Protection Act. I need that as a tattoo immediately. <laughs> oh, I think I'm going to show you some images that there are plenty of really fantastic tattoos that you'll see before the end of this episode today. Yeah. So, which, and what, as a pause, we will be showing, I will post all these images mm -hmm. so you can take a look at anything because this will be the first episode in the series where we'll, we're actually going through images. If you're wondering how to view or listen to this podcast and view the Instagram, every time you hear this sound, oh boy, go pause the or the podcast, go look at the images on the Instagram, and we will post them in the order by which we talk about them. Yes, this sound will come up, and that sound is oh boy. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. I figured like I could describe a thing to you, but how useful is that when we're on Zoom and I can just share my screen? Yeah, um, yeah. So. So th this basically um, 
yeah. So this basically extended um, uh, the copyright of Mickey Mouse, um, who now apparently will become public domain in 2024 or afterward, depending on the date of the product, right? So it depends on when, like Mickey Mouse was registered and blah, 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 blah. I don't, yeah. I don't, I, you know, and that's still stuff I'm working on that I just like haven't gotten to in my research. But like, this is a really important moment because there's a deep irony here. And there's a deep irony here because of the fact that a lot of the success that Disney, Disney had um, as a studio, an animation in a live action studio, um, was because they were drawing from stories from the public domain. Mm. So here's a list. Of the stories but, that they drew from? Yeah, and this is not exhaustive. This is just some of them. Yeah. 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, Aladdin, Beauty and the Beast, Cinderella, Hercules, The Jungle Book, The Little Mermaid, Mulan, Pocahontas, The Princess and the Frog, Robin Hood, Snow White, Sleeping Beauty, Tangled because it's actually the Brothers Grimm, Rapunzel, Treasure Island, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so every major hit for the last yeah. 20, 30 years. Yeah, so this is a good opportunity. I'm gonna share my screen because this I love this graphic. So here is a lesson from Tom Papalardo. Oh boy! Yeah, and it's The Optimist by Tom Papalardo. And it says, listen, in 1928, Walt Disney released, so it was 1928, release, which means that the company to license Mickey's likeness came the year after. Um, um, uh, Walt Disney released Steamboat Willie, the short film has been on the cusp of entering the public domain several times. 56, 76, there was a copyright act of 1976. Holy moly. Right? And like not to get conspiratorial here. Uh, and 1998, which we just dis discussed at length, but never has, but never has entered the public domain. Many claim the delay is due to the aggressive congressional lobbying for copyright extension by the Walt Disney Company. But over the course of the, the last 80 plus years, Disney has released numerous films, merchandise lines adapted from public domain stories, fables, uh, fairy tales and fables, earning them billions in profits. Moral, a corporation is allowed to co-opt our culture, repackage our storytelling heritage, and sell back our past to us. But a corporation's past is sacrosanct. Do not touch it. Do not mess with it. That would be stealing. Um, Jeez. Yeah, I love that. That it's just it's it's you know, it's it's heavy hand. It's a heavy-handed commentary, but it like it gets right to the point. Um, right. So like the value of the public domain for Disney is only the value that it can take from it, not give to it, right? Um, yeah. As a, as a corporation. And we all know with like trademarks and patents and all of these things is that like increasingly like lobbies have led to extensions on things like patents, for example, in the farm, in pharma, that's a mm -hmm. huge thing in the U S and those things are so protected now. Um, and there's so many drugs that could be life-saving and, like if they were allowed for the patent, if the patents were allowed to lapse and become generic drugs, allowing anyone to make them, you know, the, the like literally hundreds of thousands, if not millions of lives could be saved. It's the same kind of idea here. 
um, you know, and uh, yeah, I think that that's like really worth noting. So in all of this, all of this to say, what happens when you aggressively tell a bunch of people in the world not to do something? We aggressively do it. <laughs> Welcome to the bootleg toy scene. Right. So my argument here is that because of all of this, people's desire to actually co-opt and appropriate the icons and iconographies of this company and these characters, the bigger those things are, one, the more likely it's going to happen that people are going to appropriate those images because they're pervasive and ubiquitous and they're at, like they're everywhere. Like you could go anywhere in the world, anywhere in the world. And I would assume that if you held up a picture of Mickey Mouse, people would know who he is. Mm -hmm. Like probably more than any other, any other image, maybe say that other than like, say a tree or something, you know, but yeah. like any other, like any cartoon drawing, any hand-drawn image, um, I would, I would surmise that like you would be hard pressed unless you found like a tribe that has no, has had no contact with civilization. Um, you know, and it, they probably even know who Mickey Mouse is. Yeah. Um, so, so all of this, the stricter, and, and the same could be said about like, like prohibition era America with alcohol, right? Like, you know, the temperance movement, temperance movement moves in, alcohol gets prohibited and what happens like a black market thrives and people made millions and millions of dollars and with inflation that would probably be billions so like the whole idea of telling people they're not going to be able to they, they can't do something and and trying to enact sort of external control schema on them is going to lead to people not just doing what they want with these things because it's everywhere in culture and we talked about that idea of a cultural economy where in a cultural economy, we all kind of have ownership over all this stuff because it's like in our world, like, you know, in view all the time. Um, and the way that that like affects and impacts like our identities and how we think about culture as well. But like also you are like, the more you try to enact control, the more resistance you're gonna find, right? Um, and so in that resistance, the stories of resistance in terms of image making culture uh, with Mickey Mouse, I think are really interesting. Let's start with something like to return to this idea of like, you know, like public sort of facing work. Acts of control inevitably lead to acts of resistance, mm -hmm. right? Culture always responds to culture. Which that... as a pause moment before we like- sure. There's not even a reason at which we need to aggressively like prohibit what's happening or like aggressively go right. against it, right? We we're doing this only for the sole fact that we were told no. That's, That's what it feels like. One. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, you can think about that in terms of like resistance movements during like in occupied territory during wartime. Like, yeah. It's the same kind of idea. Someone comes in and tries to exert external control on you and your life and how you will express yourself, which in this case, it lines up with that. Yeah. Um, um, you're going to be like, uh, no, thank you. I would, I would like to express myself using what I draw from in culture, which is a big part of like appropriation art in general. Yeah. Um, 
and, and art in general, but appropriation art specifically when you start drawing on those images and the iconography, right? So, so all of this, all of this stuff ends up inevitably leading to, you know, you see it in in particular ways like Mickey Mouse was parodied in like Mad Magazine in the early case, for example, and in comics and stuff, to a certain like to a little bit of an extent. Um, mm -hmm. And and there's a reason why that was allowed that I'll get into when I talk about one of the projects because it blows my mind this one facet of the story. Um, but so inevitably, you know, anything that is in the public view as pervasively as Mickey Mouse is going to have people like even if kids drawing Mickey Mouse or whatever, you know, you'll see daycares use images of Mickey Mouse. And there's been a couple of examples where like people like hired someone to paint Mickey Mouse on their wall. And then those people get sued by Disney because they're not allowed to use Mickey Mouse in their daycare and stuff. Like, it's crazy. Um, that kind of control. So you know, there's there's some interesting and really fun and cheeky sort of examples of people um, sort of responding to that. And one of my favorites to start with um, uh, is this cover image from the September 1970 issue <laughs> of National Lampoon. Oh boy! I'm I'm just trying to 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 figure out. Um, I was reminded of this recently because of that. I don't know if you've seen the the biopic, uh, A Stupid and Futile Gesture. We interrupt this broadcast of Toys on Top to bring you this. Earth 2 Aliens have landed, Earthling. I want lowbrow art and bootleg toys. toys, 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 toys. Well, you come to the right place. Earth to Kentucky is a shop for folks who love vintage sci-fi, lowbrow, and art bootleg toys. Toys, 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 toys. They're located over there at 836 Main Street, Covington, Kentucky. Toys, toys. They carry original art, vintage action figures, designer bootleg toys, and toys, 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 and t-shirts. Designed exclusively for their store by some of their favorite artists. Thank you, Earthling. I enjoy Earth to Kentucky. I have all my favorite bootleg art toys. Toys, 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 toys. Hey, look at that over there! It's a spaceship! Yeah. I need to go now. Someone's filming me in my spaceship. Shop now. www.earthtokentucky.com. That's earth2kentucky.com. Or just land your spaceship when they're open. Uh, I don't think so. Um, oh, what's that guy's name? I really like him as a comedian. What's his name? That actor. Will Forte plays Douglas Kenny, one of the co-founders of National Lampoons. Mm. And it's sort of the life story of, of him. Um, and I was reminded of it because I recently watched the movie again. And I was reminded of this cover. Uh, and there's just something about it. And like, you know, of course there was a lawsuit, right? Like, of yeah. course there was a lawsuit. Um, because it's the likenesses of, of Minnie Mouse. Um, and it's the showbiz issue and it, just everything about it is just, it's like, I don't know. I don't want to like go do a deep dive on a critique of what I, but it's like, I feel like it's like, it's, it's damn near perfect as like, a, like just a one liner, like, you know, like attention grabbing. Yeah. Um, sort of like people picked this, I'm sure the sales of this issue were like colossal. Where would this, so this is the issue of National Lampoon, if you aren't looking at the Instagram. Um, where would this have been sold? We're talking newsstands everywhere. So newsstands everywhere, fully knowing, do these newsstands understand, hey, you're about to get sued or would they not get sued? Is it just the artist? Uh, they would not get sued at this particular time. It would be the magazine. Okay, um, great. Because the magazine is also responsible for distribution and the front end sales. 
-hmm. There are legal precedents that change that, though, with the story about the bubbly chubbies. Okay, which we're um, going to talk about which, at some point. Which we're going to talk about at some point. Um, and that changed the game, mm -hmm. uh, which is why, uh, you know, for, for particular reasons why, um, I'm going to stop sharing again for a second here, um, which, which is why Dove has particular reasons to say, do not use Star Wars logos and make sure everything is signed and numbered and it's a limited edition and you're the artist who made it and this is not a, this is not a product. Like, yeah. Some of that has to do with the legal precedent that was formed in the lawsuits related to Walmart, Teletubbies, and the Bubbly Chubbies from Way Out Toys. Mm -hmm. uh, and we'll get into that story because I love that story. Because I have a very weird, as like a middle-aged man, I have a very weird fascination with all things Teletubbies in general. Um, yep, that's staying <laughs> in podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, have, I have no problem with it, man. It's like yeah. weird little alien creatures with TVs in their chest. Like I'm, I'm all in. Yeah. I'm all in on that. So, right. So National Lampoon releases this magazine. Obviously, they get in a little bit of legal trouble, but not so much that it shuts down the magazine. They keep going. Okay. You know, like for those who don't are like, I mean, generations of people now do not know what National Lampoon was, but it was a, um, it was a, like adult satirical magazine that uh, was made by a couple of comedy writers, right? And so eventually they ended up making movies like Caddyshack and um, Christmas Vacation, vacation. the yeah. vacation movies. And I mean, Speaking of satire in Disney and National Lampoon, National National Lampoon's vacation, they go to Wally World, which yeah. is a parody of Disneyland. Like, yeah. um, you know, uh, so they like Disney. The bigger you get, the bigger the target on your back is. The more you try to control, the more people are going to resist. Yeah, um, and so my favorite story about this, which is probably the most well-known story and one of the most well-known lawsuits in the history of Disney um, is around a collective of artists from San Francisco called the Air Pirates, uh, sort of the spearheaded by a man named Dan O'Neill. Um, and I will show you some Air Pirates in, in a moment, but I just want to set the stage here. So this was a comic. So for, for people who might not know like Disney history, the Air Pirates in the 1930s were actually villains in um, and like the thirties through the fifties or whatever, were like villains in like Mickey Mouse comics. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and the whole, the whole idea of the control that, you know, sort of like the Disney kind of had over the space of like cartoons, um, and, and, uh, like the, just the breadth of exposure and how it influenced what people thought cartoons were. And I mean cartoons in both the animated and in the print for the print version, right? And the kind of controls that Disney had. Uh, so Dan O'Neill puts together this, uh, among others, but he seems to be the ringleader from everything I've ever seen, puts together a collective of artists. They call themselves the Air Pirates, and they put out a couple of comic books called the Air Pirates Funds. And I am going to share the cover of this to start. Oh boy. But uh so so it looks pretty innocuous except for the fact that if you look really close what is Mickey carrying on his airplane? Those are I don't know if you can tell from the distance you're at the screen. They're big bags of dope. Oh yeah 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 yeah. yeah. 
So he's flying through the air. So Mickey Mouse is now a drug smuggler. And if you look at the top, um, the the top left, Dell Comics was the comics that published the Disney stuff. And this is Hell Comics. Mm. Um, but it's using the same font as Dell, right? So they're trying to like sort of parody that. So and the font of Mickey Mouse is pretty dang close to his font that they use generally. So they're like even the smaller critique parts of it. Yeah, the aesthetics, like like we can go through here. Let me let me just so you can like it's got that like this is 1970-71. So this is still sort of like like hate Ashbury, Robert Crumb, Gilbert Sheldon kind of era American underground comics. Like when when people started co- spelling comics with an X. Yeah. Right? Like comics. Transgressive about drug <laughs> use and sexuality. All of that kind of stuff gets wrapped up into this. Um, and so this is an introduction. And all of the aesthetics of this are sort of predicated on those kind of like vintage like 30s to 60s like cartoon style in a lot of cases using characters that are not necessarily disney in some of the comics because different artists are doing different comics in this but some of them very much are so we can go through here like dirty duck is one who's sort of a kind of a donald duck analog yeah doesn't really look like donald duck um you know there's a lot of dirty duck in this like and then silly sympathies um, which is based on the silly symphonies that were done by Disney, but I think are owned by Universal, like the skeleton, the Halloween skeleton dance is a really popular one. Mm-hmm. But as you can tell, if you look in the bottom right-hand corner, there's some pretty lascivious stuff going on with these cutesy cartoon characters. Yep. As one of them is showing the other, uh, their private parts. It's Junebug, and I think Junebug, I think Junebug is actually a character from Silly Symphonies as well. So these okay. are like directly taking these characters and like, you know, and and sort of doing that transgressive subvertive work that underground comic artists were doing. Yeah. Um. You know, this is like this is what happens when like, you know, like this kind of parody existed in Mad Magazine, but Mad Magazine was like for kids and stuff, so it was obviously very toned down, right? This is like clearly adult stuff. Um, yeah. Lots of weird things, cute little bugs, having sex, doing stuff. There's some Jiminy Cricket action there. Um, and then eventually we get to, um, here we go, the the mouse, the story of the mouse. And <laughs> just, oh, I love this so much, man. Sorry, I feel like I do. I feel like doing a dramatic reading of this, but like the first line is "the whole world thinks I'm cute." Says yeah. Mickey, "Why won't Minnie fuck me? <laughs> Why won't Daisy fuck me? Why won't anybody fuck me?" And then a villain comes in, and Sylvester Shyster, and then kidnaps Mickey, takes him to his airship, uh, you know, uh, holds him at gunpoint imprisons and kidnaps Minnie Mouse, puts them in a room together, um, you know, and in the course of that, their, their, their desire and attempt to escape, but before they do, <laughs> they go for it. I, I want you to put this image right here on Instagram. That's what I want to see. I want to see what, what happens when you do that. Uh, um, yeah. I'm going to get banned for that. Yeah, or something. So 
So I will simply describe it as a, this is like one of the frames of the comic that obviously uh, riled the, the Disney execs. And I'll tell you how they found out about this comic, which is even better in a minute. Um, but to describe this panel, the best way to describe this panel is in captivity, uh, Mickey Mouse is performing cunnilingus on Mickey Mouse. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, and then the story continues in the next issue and they do lots of drugs. And, you know, you'll find out that the cousins, the younger two mice characters that come up later are in fact, um, you know, Mickey and Minnie's illicit children from this torrid affair they had while they were prisoners of the air pirates and et cetera, et cetera. So, so this is the comic and Denny O'Neill, you know, when you look at D Dan O'Neill's, um, not Denny O'Neill, Denny O'Neill was a Batman artist. They'll want to get those two mixed up. Um, so Dan O'Neill and the Air Pirates have this strategy where they just basically hire people to distribute these comics wherever. And it turns out that one of the people who was part of the collective, who was involved in those distribution discussions, was the son of a Disney executive in California um, who had um, who was kind of ostracized from his family and from the Disney Corporation, uh, according to Dan O'Neill, because he was gay. Mm. Um, so <laughs> Dan O'Neill has been very clear that he said, I always wanted Disney to sue me. And a surefire way to do that is to have the prodigal gay son of a Disney executive sneak into a Disney boardroom and leave a copy at each chair of the Disney executive. Oh, I love that. I love that so like, much. Like, we're here. We're doing this shit. Like, fuck you. Right. Yeah. And of course, like, I can only imagine, like, the lawyers probably, like, they saw, they took one look at it, got to that page that I described, and then it was like, the room was also full of lawyers. And, it, yeah. you know, so the story of the lawsuit is sort of long and storied. Um, it made it all the way to the Supreme Court. Um, because he was found in contempt of the Supreme Court. And there's this whole story there and it's very long and, and storied. And so, but one of the things that happens during this, during this trial, and I, I was trying to find the image to share with you today um, and I couldn't, but I think it's in a documentary by Ron Mann called Comic Book Confidential, which is where I le first learned the story of Mickey and the Air Pirates. Mm -hmm. It's an amazing documentary uh, made in 1988 by a Canadian documentarian named Ron Mann, who also made a documentary about weed and prohibition called Grass, which is also very good. A lot of found footage stuff, a lot of interviews. And in that, in that um, documentary, there's a whole section that he deals with Mickey and the Air Pirates and he talks to Dan O'Neill. And so Dan O'Neill's defense is that this was parody, mm. right? Okay. Because it's parody. Clearly, it's parody, right? Yeah. Um, but Disney argued that it didn't fit Disney's definition of parody. So, so the thing that's really interesting is that Disney has this rubric, and it's basically like these are the distinguishing, these are the distortions or the variations that you have to do to Mickey Mouse to make it a parody of Mickey Mouse, and then it kind of no longer looks like Mickey Mouse. It's a parody version. So Disney is saying that as the corporation who owns this IP we have the right to determine what parody is or is not, not culture, which is like fucking garbage, right? Yeah, so is that legally binding? If the company sets 
I mean, so parity laws already exist. They have to do a certain amount of differences in order to exist. But if it has to be changed, the language is, is that it has to be changed some, right? Like Dove has talked about this when he's doing interviews with people about how part of it is like this idea of the work has to be transformed to a certain extent. The problem is, is that nobody can ever agree on what the threshold is. Yeah. So Disney's saying our threshold is here's a sheet of paper and here's all the things you have to do to Mickey Mouse to make him a parody character. And so their argument was, is that not that this was a parody of Mickey Mouse, but that this was Mickey Mouse because Dan O'Neill is basically copying the form of Mickey Mouse as Mickey Mouse appears. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, and O'Neill loses the case in like, there's another lawsuit. He loses the case. He gets found in contempt of this, like some kind of contempt of court. It goes to the Supreme court. And then finally there, they say, you can make, if you're, if you're saying that this is parody, um, that's fine. That's great. That's your right as an artist, but you can only make one. Okay. You can't make 35,000 and distribute them. Well, you can make 35,000, but you can only distribute one. This is basically their argument. After he's already distributed. Yeah. Yeah, hundreds of thousands so, or however many. Yeah. Because it ended up being a First Amendment case at the Supreme Court, like he ended up not having to pay tens of millions of dollars or whatever. Mm-hmm. There, there's this other thing that happened, right? So it's like, oh, you're allowed to make one. He's like, okay, <laughs> I can make one. Yeah. Does that mean anybody can make one? <laughs> Is this where the other artists come in? They all do one. <laughs> and that, my friend, was the day that the Mouse Liberation Front was born. An art project created by the very same person who brought about making the Air Pirates and the Air Pirates funnies. Um, so the Mouse Liberation Front is like, I'm not going to get one or 50 or whatever. I'm going to get 10,000 people. I, I'll send you a video clip. I watched this like short video interview with him on YouTube today. I bookmarked it so I could send it to you. Mm-hmm. Um, I would have sent it to you before, but it was like, I literally watched it like an hour before and I'm like, I don't know what he's doing. Like, it's probably like, yeah, you know, whatever. He's got if you do him. send this to me, understand my brain is going to dive head first into this and I'm going to find dude. Dan as well. <laughs> yeah, dude. Yeah, you do that. I, all I ask, all I ask is that anytime you go down a rabbit hole that like I dug the first foot of is that when you get to the bottom and you find these people that you invite me. That's all I ask. Um, So, so anyway, he basically says in this, in this interview that I was watching that there's like 10,000 members of the mouse liberation front, that there are 50 battalions all around the world. And he starts this like informal collective of artists basically, um, they do nothing but sort of parody Mickey Mouse. There was a zine, a Mouse Liberation Front communique zine that he did. Uh, and there were several art shows. And I believe that if I do this and then do, I'm narrativizing my Zoom stuff like an old man right now. <laughs> um, but here we go. So here's some actual images from uh, the first art show in 1979. This is a heritage auction site of some of the artwork that ended up in the show for the first Mouse Liberation Front show. Oh boy! So I'm going to show a couple of these because there's more than one. But okay. like, just, just like I'll, uh, yeah, I'll, uh, you know, just so you can see. So, so now he's like, oh, if I can make one and everybody else can make one, 
well, why don't we all just make one? Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and so you can see some here. So gonna... to get that language under control, because it's making my brain like go down rabbit trails as it is, you can make one of each parody. So one artist could make 10,000 one-offs of specific parodies and distribute that one, correct? Yeah. yeah. Great. I, Great. You know, parody, I think law around parody and law, like I'm not a legal expert, like, oh my God, do not take my legal advice. Um, yeah, we, you can't come after Toys on Tap either, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Um, we're not lawyers. We're not even paralegals. We're yep. not even legal receptionists. Um, uh, <laughs> um, but all this to say that, yeah, so this is basically what he said, right? So there's this idea, and I'm sure that that's not like under fair use law, parody falls under fair use. And generally it is that thing that says, if the work is significantly transformed enough, which basically also means if the artist's voice is intervening in some way and is like clearly present, then it falls under fair use and it's okay, right? Mm -hmm. Like, which is different than you copying Mickey Mouse and trying to just sell drawings of Mickey Mouse's Mickey Mouse that you were like, you know, whatever. So like parody, fair use, that like critique, like cultural critique is part of that as well. Um, and then, yeah, there's all these like, so here's some other paintings. I love that Mona Lisa one. So oh, that's so good. Yeah, so part one exhibited at Phil Suling's New York and Philadelphia Comic Conventions 1979. Part two added at the San Diego Comic Con, 1979. Jeez. And now think about the presence that Disney fucking has at San Diego Comic Con, right? Like, it's just crazy. Um, here's some more. Oh, even blackface Mickey. Mm-hmm. Weird. Which is a valid critique of some of the, like, the racist history of this company as well and the people yeah. involved. Oh, right? like, I want the Jesus, the Jesus Mickey. I want it. Yeah, Rika should make those. Yeah, holy Just do a Jesus. stormtrooper. You listening, Rika? Oh, I know um, Rika's listening. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> uh, I feel like that's like right up his alley of putting like pop culture icons on crosses and stuff. Um, and then here's some more. I think that's it for that for the MLF. So yeah, so the thing that's really kind of like critically important here um, for me is that not only do they think that they can police like and and prevent people from from doing work that is parody and critique but that they get to define what it is that's a really really sort of dark and dangerous place right mm -hmm. like um that's a kind of control that corporate ip holders generally speaking do not have um and you know the power of this you know of, of this corporation is that they do um you know or or like it's kind of a will to power thing. They determine that they do, so they do. Mm -hmm. um, and not to not to bring in some Nietzsche there, but you know. Um, so yeah, so the MLF and like the Air Pirates work, I think is really, really fascinating work. I highly rec I will send you as many images as I can. But like that's like, man, like if you think about if you look at Mickey Mouse parody or Mickey Mouse satire, like you Google search that there are days of content to consume yeah like weeks and months of content to consume in fact i would argue that there's probably in terms of the images that disney has produced themselves whether through film or just like still image or comic versus the amount of work that has been done outside of that i would say that that's like a thousand to one 
in favor of like Disney is the one. Okay. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. It's, Mickey Mouse is so ubiquitous that like that the amount of sort of parody and satire and sort of like copyright work, like work that violates violates the prohibition of the Disney copyright, mm-hmm. um, will vastly outnumber. I think maybe not maybe not in terms of like obviously not in terms of merchandise but then again you never know because like the black market being what it is who knows but i would say in terms of independent image production i would say that there are probably more independently produced images of mickey mouse in the world than actual like corporate ones even in the hundred year history of mickey interesting um and i could be talking out of my ass here but i i can only assume that that's that that's true because of cultural response to culture and yeah. if if you know disney produces one iconic image of mickey mouse that circulates the world all of those people who consume that some of them are going to produce images also based on that image um and you know it's a numbers game the one corporation versus like billions of people so mm-hmm. that's sort of that's sort of how i think about it but like this is really just the beginning like you know the simpsons does a very good job of playing at disney all the time i mean we played that quote which is basically like that whole episode is kind of about Disney and Oswald the rabbit to a certain extent. Yeah. Um, you know, itchy and scratchy land is part Jurassic park, part Disneyland parody. Um, you know, there are like, I'm just going to start like sharing some random tabs that I found today in preparation for this. So let's pull up here are the five Disneyland knockoff theme parks from around the world. Oh yeah, yeah, I'm in. Dreamland in Japan, 1959. Europa Park in Germany, 1975. Shinjin uh, Amusement Park in China. Um, Wonderland in China. And the Wonderland story is interesting because Disney kept telling the, the Chinese government that they needed to like intervene and shut that down. And the Chinese government did nothing until Disney said, well, you're fake, you have a fake Disneyland outside of Beijing. We'd like to build a real one, but we're only going to do it if you shut that park down. And then they shut that park down. Woo! Yeah. Everyone's in it for money. Yeah. And then Lata World in Korea is another one. Um, yeah. Face, fake Disney theme park forced to close in 2007. Wow. Um, wow. Wow. That is so recent. Yeah. 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 And then there's uh, like, I, I just pulled up like a lot of different random stuff. So there was an artist that was trying to get sued by Disney by um, um, one artist baited. Yeah. In order to bust t-shirt makers that copy artist designs, one artist baited them into deep legal waters. Uh, and it was basically an artist trying to bait other artists into copying him. Um uh you know and and this is that this is actually something that i find really interesting because like like honestly if you are creating um if you are creating parody art based on mickey mouse and then you get pissed off that people are copying you um you know my opinion about this i stated this pretty clearly last week you you kind of have no moral or like legal frame to stand like like to stand on there i'm sorry like yeah um, you know, if like, it's one thing to do this work for critique. It's another thing to do this, to try to like make money on T public or whatever the fuck, like, and then, and then also publicly shame people who copy that. Like, I'm not, I'm not into that kind of like gotcha sort of practice. 
But I think the image itself is really funny and totally dumb and it kind of works, right? Like there are, there are artists that then invite this kind of controversy um, that I think are, you know, are doing some sort of the interesting stuff. And do I have any Dismalands images? I have the Dismaland trailer. Maybe I'll just send that to you afterwards. So kind of getting on here and I don't want to go on forever, but mm -hmm. like, so all of those are the two, like, or that is the, like, sort of the key story, I think, in the, in the Disney story that I think we have the most to, like, sort of, like, learn from and appreciate for what we do, right? But in the toy space, I also think it's really interesting to think about other artists who've done work. Like, if you look at, if you look at the designer vinyl scene, there is plenty of work that looks like, like, work that is appropriating, like, Disney iconography but is making it different enough that they can sort of get away with it. Yeah. But even like the last example that I, that I, that I want to use for today, oops, um, for, for our purposes before sort of having some final thoughts here is, uh, is someone who, you know, I talked about, I've talked about a bunch, um, who, who comes from like street art and culture jamming and ends up now being one of the sort of most well-known and like well-sold um, and therefore kind of like wealthiest artist in the world is Cause. Yeah, um, where they have like massive statues and all kinds of stuff. Yeah, augmented reality, giant inflatable things. As of last, as of, as of a couple of last week, a couple of weeks ago, um, Fortnite Halloween themed cause companion skins in Fortnite that were $10 a piece. Um, so you can imagine at scale what that looks like. Um, but the companion is a really interesting figure. Uh, and it's a really interesting figure in that from the head, from the shoulders down, it is Mickey Mouse. Yeah. Um, the head is obviously different and it's like part of the original, like sort of artwork that comes from like the bus shelter sort of culture jamming, like billboard hacking that cause did back in the 90s but the actual body of this there there are several companion figures one is basically elmo um and this is obviously mickey mess mm -hmm. right but is it transformed enough that it is distinct or does he have like some kind of backroom deal with disney to sort of keep producing this work i don't know i don't i, I mean obviously i don't know but the work has been out there since the 90s, this character. And I, I, I have this belief that like somebody somewhere determined that this was legally distinct enough that he could do it. But like you look at it and just put your hand over his head and you're like, I, I'm going to see a mouse head. Here. Yeah. Um, and so I find that interesting also because Cause has actually done um, designer toys uh, with Medicom in Japan that licensed to Disney characters. Oh my gosh. <laughs> like, like the snake, this is that whole thing about, you know, late capitalism and re like capitalist recuperation. Like if, if you're into that kind of thing, uh, the snake is eating its own tail here all the time, mm -hmm. like all the fucking time. Um, and cause is a really excellent example of this as well. Um, you know, I, I, I appreciate the work. Um, I think that it's, you know, when you're, when you're, I <laughs> As someone who is like, who, who very much enjoys art and culture, I think one of my sort of like chief critiques of this work 
is that variations on a theme for 22 years or 25 years or whatever are not all that interesting to me. But like this is, you know, this is it's less less artwork and more brand, right? The one of the conditions of postmodernism is the collapsing of boundaries between phenomena. So art and commerce, there's no boundary there. It's all the same thing now. Um, and then so this is this is sort of where we get to this kind of stuff. Um, yeah, and then like there are myriads of other examples that I could tell, but I feel like I've told the story that I really wanted to tell and share today. And then I just kind of wanted to end this with like going back to some of those questions or comments about like the beast that it is now, right? Like I think of, I think of this and I think of the origins as this attempt for an artist to defend his own rights and labor in the face of like, like corporate, like intellectual property theft and malfeasance. And, you know, there are other things about Disney, like I said, that we could critique the history of sort of like racism and its relationship to fascism and all this other kind of stuff, right? Yeah. And, and I can idealize that like he did it because, you know, American entrepreneurial spirit, I'm standing up for my rights or whatever. And that's all fine. But the deep irony now is that this beast, this corporate beast that just can, it consumes as much as it produces, right? Mm, yeah, um, okay. Like there is like, like, so, so maybe I wrote this opening paragraph, but I think we can use this to close. And then I'll, I'll I have like two examples. So this is a story that interestingly enough begins as an artist standing up for his own rights and then becomes the tale of one of the key figures of avarice, a global corporation pulling the strings of the entertainment industrial complex through stifling competition, through litigation and bullying, backroom deals and corporate acquisition, in short, a rather typical 21st century corporation, right? But the roots of it are in 1920s, like defending the rights of an artist. And I find that yeah. fascinating. And then now, I don't know if you heard about this lawsuit. Maybe this is like a good place to, to sort of, we know about the acquisition. So we know about like the Fox thing and the Hulu and we talked about all of that. The Muppets, Star Wars, Marvel, you know, all this sort of IP, all the real estate holdings, all the other subsidiaries and subsidiaries and subsidiaries. But one of the things that really struck me recently in relation to Marvel was that some of the rights for some of the Marvel characters were are about to revert back to their creators outside of Marvel. So they oh, made Oh crap. So they made these characters while they worked at Marvel and the rights are about to revert back to them for whatever reason to their estates. And I think Spider-Man is one of them. Like Steve Ditko because mm -hmm. he was the co-creator with Stan Lee, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Disney is suing to stop that from happening. Hmm. Um, so the company that was built on artist rights is also working actively to deny them in the present. Yeah. And be like, maybe, maybe the lesson here is to quote another comic book movie from another multinational corporation. You either die the hero or you live long enough to become the world.
New from Toys on Tap. Toys on Tap. The next episode. The next episode. It's great. It's amazing. You're going to want to listen to it. It's not right now, though. You're going to have to wait till the next episode to listen to it. Oh, when's that? The next one. Cool. Toys on Tap. Toys on Tap. The next one's going to be good, too. So stay tuned and, and, and listen to that. Toys on Tap. Awesome.